0: As we come into this final Sunday of the identity series, we've been working our way through uh, the, the, the three words of grow, serve, and go, that we want to be a church who is found in our identity of growing in, in our depth and our love of God and our knowledge of the scriptures so that might produce in us a changed life and, and really a vibrant reflection of what that is. We've been working through this idea of service that as we grow in our understanding of who God is, that that demands that we have an outward manifestation of that. It can't just be so that we can get smarter in the Word. It can't just be so that we can know more Scripture passages or know the Word better, but it has to produce in us works. It's got to it's mean something else. And this idea that God has saved us so that we can turn around and proclaim the excellencies, you'll remember, of Him who transferred us From the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light. Well, this morning we look at how to bring all three of these ideas and and this identity together in in the combination of worship. Now, worship has a has a bad name in some churches. If you were to ask uh, a member of, of, of just random church, First Baptist bug tussle, and say, you know, what's your worship like? They might say, well, our worship is, is quasi-traditional with a slight flare and a little garnish of contemporary every other Sunday that doesn't precede a, a uh, memorial service. And you're like, well, what does that look like? And see, they're particularizing their worship in terms of, of music. They're particularizing their worship in terms of what the, what the music looks like. But man, if, if that's how you look at worship, then, then that's anemic. That is weak. And, and, and quite honestly, if, if you were to tell God, God, look, my perception of worship can only be this way. It can only be with a piano and an organ. He would be repulsed. Equally, if you were to go to God and say, God, my, my worship can only be this way. It's got to have an electric guitar. It's got to have drums. If you were to say that to God, he would be repulsed. He would say your worship is null and void. As a worshiper of Jesus, you are not returning to Him adequate worship because you're worshiping Him based upon your desires. You're worshiping Him based upon your preference. When we turn to the Psalms to get an idea of worship, we see in Psalm, uh, Psalm 95 that we can worship God in song. Psalm 95 1 says, Co come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful now, a noise to the rock of our salvation. Man, we are to join in song in singing praises to God. We are to worship God through song. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we see that from our, our Baptist standpoint, something that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. In Psalm 149 in verse 3, it says, let them praise his name with dancing. Let them praise his name with dancing. And we start thinking, well, you know, two-step. I, don't, I just can't, I can't do some of this other stuff. But man, we have some four-year-olds that are joining us in the service today. They might break into dance. Some of you have seen my son play soccer. You know that he is a dancer. <laughs> but we are to praise his name with dancing. In Psalm 150 and 1 through 6, we see this holistic understanding of what worship is to be. The Psalms this writes It says, praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Man, amen. Amen. Everything is meant to be given in praise and worship of God. This isn't one reflection of it. This is a lifestyle, and everywhere we go and everything we do should praise and worship God. So the question becomes, how do we as a body reflect worship and serve? How do we as a body reflect worship and grow? How do we as a body reflect worship in the going and telling of His excellent greatness? That's what we hope to find out today. Let's turn to Psalm 1 as we look at this idea of how we can worship God through growing. Psalm 1 opens up the book of Psalms and and combined with Psalm 1 and 2, it gives us an overview of all the themes contained within the Psalter. We see that in Psalm 1, he opens up and he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. See, Psalm 1 opens up and it gives us this beautiful picture of what it is to grow as a worshiper of Jesus. This passage opens up and and the author of the psalm immediately says, Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man, blessed is the person who finds themselves not doing certain things and doing one distinct thing. We see ourselves within this psalm going through the rigors of life. We see ourselves surrounded by these same groups of people. These same groups of people, the wicked, those who just live lives contrary to the work of God. Contrary to the word of God. And the passage tells us, it says, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. The Psalms is making this argument that that when we find ourselves given to accepting the spiritual advice of the world, that it pulls us away from God. So we see an intensification in in this first verse. He starts off, he says, look, don't, don't walk in this way. And as you walk and you engage and you hear things that, that sound like good pieces of advice, don't, don't stop and listen to it. Don't stop and say, you know, that man, that sounds like something so close to something I read in Scripture. And, and, it, and it's more immediate in its results to me, and it's more impactful to me financially, and, and really, I, just, I find it to be a lot more palatable. Just, just put it away. Don't buy into that. See the text tells us that blessed is the man when he's walking along and he hears these things coming to him from the wicked and he hears these things coming to him from the sinners. He doesn't buy into it. He He doesn't, in the process of going through life, stop and say, you know what, that sounds great, that really resonates with me. And then find himself sitting And just pulling in all of these ideas from the world around him. You see, he's moved from the wicked all the way down to the scoffers. Those who would look at Christianity. Those who would look at God and find themselves in vocal opposition to God. Man, we live in this world. We carry a message of hope into this world. And there's a difficulty there. Because we are stained when we go out into our community. We are stained when we go out into our jobs. And we are trying to live a a Christian life. We are trying to live a a life which reflects the word of God. As worshippers of God. And all of these things are being hurled at us. All of these things are coming at us. But the Psalms just gives us a way through this. He said, blessed is the man Blessed is the person who doesn't get distracted by these things, but instead, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. Man, the This isn't saying, look, set your alarm early in the morning. You, what you need to do is wake up at 4.45, read your Bible for 30 minutes, 30 minutes on your face, don't fall asleep, you got to pray. And then 30 minutes in, in writing in your prayer journal, oh God, help me with my encounters with Bob today, oh God, help me with my encounters with Sue today, oh God, help me eat my oatmeal to the glory of your kingdom today. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is every facet of your life, this night and day, all the time. He's not particularizing it to when the sun rises and when the sun sets. He's saying all the time, meditate on his law. Meditate on the law of the Lord. Now, what does it mean to meditate? What does it mean to find ourselves in this? You see, the way the this would have us read this and have us understand this, he's talking about in everything you do. This isn't, wasn't written so that people would, would set out 15 minutes in their morning to read the Bible, to set out 5 minutes or, or 30 seconds before mealtime to pray. This was written to direct us that in our lives, everything we do, everything we do, all time that we spend should be spent in communion with God, you see, as those who are are worshiping in our growing, we do this joyfully. And the Psalms just gives us a reflection of what this produces in us. It says, "The person that does this is like a tree." You say, okay, trees are sturdy. I like that. I like where he's going. Trees are sturdy. He said, look, he's he's like a tree and and not just a tree that's on its own, that that is given and planted and then just left alone. You see, from the the culture that he would have written this, they had an understanding of of trees not living too long and of dying. Imagine a tree planted in a desert. I mean, it's doing well. It comes along. Somebody's out there dutifully watering it, but then all of a sudden they say, look, it's who wants to go into the middle of the desert to water a tree? Man, i got better things to do. But this tree that he writes about. This tree isn't dependent upon somebody coming along with a leaky watering can and filling it up. This tree is planted beside streams of water. That in this dry and dusty land, we are planted beside streams of water. And we yield our fruit and our season and our leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. I mean, this isn't a, a word that if you give yourself to God, that he's gonna make everything great in your life, but it's this understanding that in prospering, we are growing in holiness. This idea of, of prospering is growing closer to who God is, to who he would have you be. See, in giving yourself to meditation. And giving yourself over as a worshiper of God to the careful study of His Word, to the implementation of His Word in your life, to taking every thought captive for God. Man, He's growing you. He's stretching you. He's moving in you. And then we see this this quick contrast. It says, look, the wicked aren't this way. He describes them as this thing that is passing, this thing that the wind carries away. He says they're like chaff, which which the wind carries away. There's no staying power. There's no lasting fruit. There's no lasting legacy of life. Man, why would you give yourself to these things that you hear which are contrary to the word of God? When it is our reflection on the Word of God, which is in fact truth, which is in fact life-giving, that will sustain you, that will cause you to grow, it will cause you to produce fruit in your marriage. It will cause you to produce fruit in raising your children. It will cause you to produce fruit in your job. It will cause you to produce fruit in every facet of life. He says, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. This idea that those who are bent against the word of God will not stand in judgment. Those who find themselves living lives outside of the forgiveness of God, outside of salvation, they won't be able to stand in the judgment. Nor will they find themselves feeling at home and comfortable in the congregation. And there is a piercing word for all of us in verse 6. He says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And as we've already been told, the way of the wicked will perish. And think about this piercing word for us as a body. That as we're seeking to grow in our understanding of who God would have us be, that, that if you do that out of a sense of guilt, that if you do that out of some sense of a family tradition, well, my family's gone to this church for generations. I don't really care for the way they do things, but I just, I'm a man or I'm a woman of habit, and I just can't break that. Man, if that's the reason, if that's the reason you come here on Sundays, there's no reward in that. If that's the reason you read your Bible, there's no joy in that. See, God is seeking out true worshipers of himself. And what the text tells us is he knows the righteous. That if you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that God looks at you and he knows you. He knows you to a level of depth and intimacy that your closest friend could never begin to understand. He knows every intention of your heart. He sees straight through every pretense. And that is both terrifying and refreshing. Man, it's refreshing in that there's no need to have pretense before God because He sees you and He reckons you lovely because of Christ. He sees you, and he reckons you holy because of the shed blood of Christ at work in your life. But it is truly terrifying. That every time we encounter somebody, that every time we, we open his word, and our hearts just aren't in it, and, and we're doing it out of some sense of, of obligation, we're doing it out of some sense of, well, I don't really want to do this somebody's going to ask me, I've got to be able to tell them that I did it. And God sees straight through that. He sees all the way to your heart, all the way to your soul. God's desire is that Ridgecrest would come together and we would be worshipers of Jesus who are growing in our love and knowledge of Him. His desire is that Ridgecrest would come together and that we would be true worshipers of God in our pursuit of Him. Let me pray for us that as we move into the section of service and going that God would would convict us that He would move in our hearts. Father, I pray that You would just Give us a deep sense of what it means that you know us. God, you know all of our hidden deeds. You know all of our intentions. God, you know even those things which we have deluded ourselves into believing don't exist. Show us our heart. God, give us a picture of what it would look like if Ridgecrest Baptist Church would become true worshipers of Jesus. God, give us a picture of what it would look like in our hearts that if we would give ourselves solely to you. God, produce in us worship. Cause us to be a church of worshipers. Reveal in us, God, reveal to us where you would have us grow, what areas of our life you would have us surrender. Speak to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. As we continue to look at this idea of worship and worshipers, we come to this idea of service. Now, man, we spent months going through this in, in James. We spent months going through this idea uh, that, that works, or that faith without works is dead. It, it, it's, it doesn't have any existence, no vibrance, it's just, it's just hollow. But today we're going to look at it from the perspective of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, the church in Corinth is, is not a place anybody would necessarily want to be a member of. It's a church you'd probably visit just to say you've been there, but it's not a church that you'd want to have uh, this close association with because of all the mess going on there. This is the type of church, if they were to issue out and say, look, we're looking for a new pastor, you wouldn't get very many responses of people wanting to sign up for that job. Like, it really doesn't matter how big the paycheck is. It sounds like it's going to be miserable. I'd just rather not. Right, You have people lining up for unemployment instead of going to Corinth. This church in Corinth, they give themselves to the pursuit of all kinds of things that just don't matter. They place perspectives uh, in the wrong way. They, they order things incorrectly. They find themselves pursuing the more extravagant, extravagant gifts of the Holy Spirit. But if where we find them today in chapter 3, they have even gone to the point of saying, look, so-and-so is my favorite teacher. Now, I, I know that even in here today, there are those of you who say, man, this guy is, is, is my favorite preacher par excellence. I think that W.A. Criswell is just the bee's knees. I love him. If only Matt would wear white suits, maybe he would be closer to W.A. Criswell. I don't own any white suits. That's not going to happen. Or maybe you'd say, oh, man, you know, so-and-so is, is my favorite preacher. I, I just love the way that, that Tony Merida looks. If only Matt would shave his head and, and grow some facial hair, maybe he would be closer to Tony Merida. I, can't, I, I just can't grow facial hair. I've never admitted that in front of a, an audience this size. I just can't do it. And I'm not balding, so why would I shave this? But it's this idea that we find ourselves having people that, that we like. Maybe you say, Billy Graham is my favorite. Oh, Billy Graham, his heart is so pure. I just love everything about him. But if that's what you value... If you find yourself getting caught in this idea that maybe you found a pastor that came there, you look at the history of Ridgecrest. And you have one pastor you love, and you have one pastor you just really hate. And that's what you measure things. And so we find people that are in one camp or another. Paul steps into the middle of that, and he says, stop it. What do you think you're doing? Stop it. He said, look, you can't play favorites with the gospel." Man, you absolutely can't play favorites with the gospel. And so he, he goes at them, and it's, it's very personal for him because people are choosing him, and people are choosing Apollos. Now, Paul came in with a gospel full board, just blew people away. Apollos came in, and he was an orator par excellence. Everything he said was like honey dripping from his mouth. It, just, it, it, was, it was beautiful the way that he spun the gospel to them. Paul comes in. He just he shows them how they have perverted the gospel in their pursuit and their valuation of one worker over another. He says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. See, Paul came into Corinth and he knew that there were people that were prideful. He knew there were people that that saw themselves as being very cosmopolitan. They don't work in the fields, they're not farmers. The idea of working with their hands is something that just kind of repulsed them a little bit. It's something they said, Look, that's beneath us. So Paul picked their two favorite teachers. He says, You know, we all were farmers. He says, Apollos is a farmer, and I'm a farmer. Man, I came out, and your field was in, in, in chaos. And all I did was I planted a seed. Planted a seed. You'll remember that Paul did some ministry in Corinth. And he said, all Apollos did is he came along a little bit later, and he added water to that seed. He says, look, we're nothing. We're absolutely nothing. You know who's something? God. He said, I planted a seed. Apollos watered that seed, but this is what happened. God gave the growth so that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only the God who gives growth. Now, Paul's not working in and saying that that he's absolutely valueless, that Apollos is absolutely valueless, but when he sets up this measuring scale, and he says, look, you've got." three workers. You've got Apollos, Paul, and God. It's like he stepped in their midst and said, why don't you guys order and you tell me who's the most important in this? Why don't you guys order this and tell me who you think is the most important in this? I mean, we could do the same thing here. Some of you have been here for many years. You reflect back and you say, this pastor is the most important because this is the role he played at Ridgecrest. You look back at the history of this church and you say, and this pastor He's the one that really messed things up for us. You recognize that everybody serves a purpose. When Paul writes to them, he said, Look, I don't don't care who your favorite is. God is the one who gave the growth. God is the one who's at work. He who plants and he who waters are one, Paul tells us in verse 8. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul says, Look, we are all on the same team. There are those of you in, in this Corinthian church, as he wrote to them, he'd say, Look, there are those of you who are pen pals with Apollos. You're writing and be like, Look, things have gotten bad since you left. You'll remember Sister Sue. Well, she's still got that thing. Look, I'm not gossiping, but you should know it's getting bigger, it's getting worse. Um, and then there's, there's, you know, well, let's just not even go there. Okay, well, maybe I should go there. You remember Bobby. Bobby did this thing. Okay, let me just go ahead and tell you what it was because you're not going to be back for a while. And by the end of it, they had this whole list and litany of things they're writing to Apollos. But This is what Paul tells them. He said, look, it doesn't matter who your favorite was because Apollos and I, we are on the same team. We are working together with God. He says, we are God's fellow workers. Now, lest we read that and be inclined to think that, that it's the three of them, this trio, that is going out and working. The way that Paul constructs this, he is saying that God owns Paul. God owns Apollos. And he is working with them. He is working through them. Man, I am not my own. I am God's worker. This church doesn't own me. None of you own me. None of you really have a whole lot of of say into into how I do things, God is the one who I'm taking direction from. And that's the point that Paul is making to them. You are God's field and God's building. Paul flips it. Verse 10, he says, According to the grace God has given me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each take care how he builds upon it. Paul said, look, I came in And I recognized you guys needed a foundation. And you'll remember through our study of 1 Peter that Paul came in and he chose the choice cornerstone. And he laid this foundation which he's about to tell us is Christ. Paul came in and he preached to them this gospel which was ridiculous. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, bore all of their sin, all of their iniquity for their forgiveness. Man, this is a stumbling block. This is a rock of offense. He preached to them something they thought was utterly ridiculous. He preached to them, Jesus Christ crucified. He said, I came in and I laid a foundation. And then he turns to them and he says, let each one take care how he builds upon. He turns around and he points a finger back at the congregation there in Corinth. He says, for each one of you who are saved, who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you must realize that the foundation of your salvation is Christ. And so this question goes out to them, what have you placed upon his foundation? What are you building on top of Christ? What are you building on top of Christ? He says in verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation Other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. He goes out and he says, Look, some of you have been engaged in behavior and are doing things in Corinth, and, and it's amazing you give your life selflessly for the advancement of the gospel you give over and above even what what you're able to do you give sacrificially you give holistically you give to the point where it causes you great and personal pain and you're serving is an act of worship before god And then as we look at that and we look at the foundation of what was laid there and we look at Christ as that foundation, we recognize that some of you have come in and in your acts of service before God have laid down gold. This is an expensive builder, is it not? I mean, this is the guy that I I certainly don't want to do a cost plus 10% at the end of this. There's some of you that have come in and you have laid silver on top of this foundation. Man, you're 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 spending some expensive money on this thing. There are those of you that have come in and you saw that foundation and you rightly appraised it. And as a worshiper of God, you took precious stones and you laid that over the foundation. He says, look, and there are those of you. Man, you came in, you saw the foundation, you recognized it for what it is. And you said, look, his work was so good. Let me just go in and I'm just going to put some wood over here. I'm just going to stack it nicely in the corner. It, it looks good. It's a great pile of wood I've got here, God. Wood's not enough. Okay, I recognize that. And I'm just going to put it, I'm going to put some hay garnish around it. This is really nice. God, look at my wood stack. Look at my hay. It's, you're right. It's, it's not enough, is it? Stubble. I've got some of that. It's back in the house. And so they go and they find the easiest thing that they can do, the easiest thing they can gather. They say, look, I've got to serve God. Let me just go ahead and put this thing over here. And they step back and say, man, it looks a lot like a scarecrow, but I think it's a good thing to put on this foundation. I think it's a, it, it's a very good thing. But what they're building, friends, is nothing more than a bonfire. It's nothing more than a bonfire. Paul says the day will disclose it. Why? Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Man, that's that's a sobering thought. That each of us, when we die or at the return of Christ, will stand before a holy God and he will evaluate the work you've done. God's going to evaluate everything you've done. He's going to check everything you've done. He's going to inspect it. And the text tells us that if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. But the one whose work is is burned up, the one who has done nothing more than to construct a bonfire, he will be saved, but only through fire. God is purifying our works. And we look at that and we ask the question, what does that look like in my life? What does that look like in the life of our body? See, if we're going to give ourselves to pursuing worship as a body, if everything we do is going to be met out in worship and described by worship, then as worshipers of Jesus, when we serve him, we can do nothing but to lay gold and silver and precious stones. See, some of us have, have bought into this lie that everything we do, that in giving a lot of money, that in, in, in serving all of the time, that that's what God would have us do. That as long as I serve a lot, give a lot, and am very prominent, that God would recognize that as gold, silver, precious stones. See, but as worshipers of Jesus, and this is the difficult. As worshipers of Jesus, he doesn't just look at the cost. He looks at your heart. You'll remember that God knows the righteous. And what is your heart motivation in service? What is your heart motivation in giving? What is your heart motivation? That is you, as a worshiper of Jesus, serve. You can be like the widow who drops in two completely valueless, worthless coins. And in that act of sacrifice, she was building with gold. Or you can be like the rich who backed up trucks full of money and poured it into the temple, that in their extravagant display of wealth and giving, they did nothing but add stubble to the bonfire. Friends, God is calling us to serve Him, but He is calling us to serve Him as worshipers. Let's enter into the time of responsive reading as we begin to move into the last segment. In Psalm 98, the words will appear on the screen for you to read together. Let me start us. It says, O sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made He has Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praise to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets. Verses 8 and 9. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Friends, God is coming again. And He has entrusted to the church this message of salvation which we must carry forward. And We see in Matthew 28 that the disciples gather with Jesus. And Jesus gives to them these final words, this parting instruction. And the interesting thing that as he sets this up, we see that they're already engaged in worshiping Jesus. They're already engaged in worshiping Jesus. Verse 17 tells us, And when they saw him, they worshiped him. Recognize that we share the gospel as worshipers of Jesus. We share the gospel out of a sense and an understanding that as worshipers, this is what we're compelled to do. We are sharing good and great news. I heard somebody compare it like this. They said, look, if you knew the winning lottery numbers, and you could give those to somebody, would you do it? And, and I heard that and thought about it and I said, one, I don't play the lottery and so I probably wouldn't buy a ticket anyway. Two, I think they're just trying to get my money. And three, salvation is infinitely greater. You could win the most extravagant amount of money ever afforded and it would still pale in comparison with a gift offered in salvation. Somebody could bestow on you healing from every sickness, every disease you might ever encounter and that would be great. Friends, that would pale In comparison with the gift that we receive in salvation from God. Jesus in the flesh tells the disciples. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus tells them, he says, look, in essence, I want you to understand this game is fixed. I I, I know what all the cards are. I know how this thing is going to play out. I know this isn't going to catch me off guard. It's not like when when Judas came up to kiss Jesus, he thought, really, Judas? I did not see that one coming. All this time, I thought it would be Peter. He's so brash. He's not great with the sword. I just could have. Judas, though, you kept the money. We always had food to eat. You're so responsible. None of that caught Jesus off guard. Every punch that struck his face. Every lash from the whip. The dawning of the rope. The thorn of crowns when they took it and they shoved it down on his head. He had all authority. All power. And he accepted it all the same. I mean, as worshipers of Jesus, as those who give our lives to him, there's only one response. And that is to carry out this message joyfully So Jesus goes to them and he says, look, on the basis of all of these things, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells them, and the the command given in this is this idea that we are to make disciples. I mean, that's where the the thrust of the imperative is in this passage. We are to be making disciples. We're not to, to go out and to drive through neighborhoods and just start Throwing tracks at people as we drive by and be like, Look, Mama, hit that one in the head. Surely they're going to read it. Or even go up and ring doorbells at dinner time because we know people will be captive and be like, I see you in there. That's meatloaf. Come talk to me. I mean, that's just ridiculous. It's so much more than just door-to-door evangelism. It's so much more than just going out and dropping off tracks. It's so much more than walking up to the counter at Burger King or Terry's or wherever you want to go and saying, hey, do you love Jesus? And they say, no. You say, okay, uh, please don't spit on my food. I knew I forgot to say this after you brought me the food, but I messed up. I'm not trying to offend you. Please. Okay, I'm leaving. I'm going somewhere else. It's so much more than that. You see, the command is to make disciples. You know how that happens? It happens by investing our lives in the lives of those around us. It happens by giving ourselves over to the involvement with lost people. Having them in our homes. Allowing them to inspect the way that we respond to our spouses, that we discipline our children, that we respond to our subordinates and our superiors in the workplace. The way we spend our time. Man, the the car we drive, everything testifies to a disciple about the way the one instructing him should live their life. The way I live my life should communicate to those I'm discipling that I am a worshiper of Jesus, that I long to sing the praises of the King and I am doing so in everything I do. He says, go therefore and make disciples everywhere. Man, we make disciples here in our jobs. We make disciples to the farthest reaches of the world. This isn't just a call to bold missions. This isn't just a call to go to the farthest reaches of the world, but it's a call to go to the farthest reaches of Hunt County. It's a call to go to the furthest reaches of Greenville High School. Man, it's a call to go to the furthest reaches of Greenville Christian School, of every elementary, of every middle school, of every daycare center. You think there are people there who don't know Jesus? Man, absolutely. We're to go and make disciples. We're to see them through to completion. We're to be faithful to God in serving others with the gospel. He says, teaching them to obey, verse 20, all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What a beautiful picture. As we tell people the good news that Jesus came, that he lived, that he died, that he offers to them the forgiveness of sins in his son. That as we proclaim this to them, we are also teaching them. See, this is why it's making disciples. Because Jesus tells the, the, the 12 or the 11, he says, Look, go out, teach them to obey everything that you've seen me do. Everything you've heard me say. They're reflecting back on the last three years of ministry with Jesus. That's, not, that's something they can't do in a five-minute conversation. They can't, in a five-minute conversation, put together all the things that Jesus has told them and, and just regurgitate it on somebody and just leave. See, Jesus is calling us to invest Jesus is calling us to give our lives over. Jesus is calling us as worshipers, us as a body, to be the church that would communicate this life-saving message. So the question goes out. Do you see yourself as a worshiper of Jesus? Or do you see yourself as somebody who just conveniently compartmentalizes Christianity? See, because being a worshiper of Jesus requires that you be somebody who meditates on his word. Being a worshiper of Jesus requires that you have this understanding and you move forward with the understanding that there is coming a day where he will test your works. We serve as worshipers and we grow as worshipers. We have this understanding that there will come a day where well, we will give a response to those we refuse to share with. Do you long to be a worshiper of Jesus and growing? Do you long to be a worshiper of Jesus and serving? And do you long to be a worshiper of Jesus and going? Let me pray for us.